Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore applying design principles to everyday life. I'm your host and founder of Frost Collective, Vince Frost. Designers are amazing. Their creativity and their approach to life and their general nature for collective organisation and this is good to stop sometimes and say, oh, I love designers. You know, I love their, their often inarticulated romantic approach to mundane problems or their left of centre thinking as to you know, something that, that might be seen as an obstacle to other people and is seen as a, a way to enjoy something more. I, I, I love them. My guest today is my good friend and industrial designer, Andrew Simpson. From glass blower to boat maker, eyewear inventor to car designer and chopper customizer, Andrew Simpson's design career gives Johnny Ive a run for his money. From the intimately handcrafted to mass-produced industrial products, the range of Andrew's output is phenomenal. He works across all aspects of industrial design, strategy and craft to find meaning and value in design. Born in Darwin, Andrew grew up in Sydney a poor student but a natural maker of things. He found his fit as an industrial designer at a young age and after brief spells glass blowing and designing medical products, he founded Vert Design in 2005. Andrew's experimental approach has led to great diversity of design within Vert, where the expertise he's gained through self-initiated projects has informed work with all sorts of leading Australian and global brands. Andrew and I share the love of motorbikes and have spent many Sundays riding together. He is a true original and his way of looking at objects and the world is wonderful to be around. His practice embodies fearless experimentation with material, sustainable practice, elegant usability and current design. And why he hasn't had a call from Apple is still a mystery to me. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, Vince. It's so cool you're here today in the Redfern studio. You're uh, a good friend and uh, industrial designer. Um, I understand you've been doing it for 10 years now, is that right? Uh, 15. Wow. 15. How did you start? Uh, it's a good, good question. I started in industrial design as a glass blower. So I, um, well, I think I'll go back a step. Uh, I was a particularly poor student at school, but very good at design and technology, engineering, mm-hmm. uh, a natural maker, making boats and surfboards and skateboards and I was looking down the barrel of not having a great university entry score Um, and just by chance my parents had happened to be tutors at the old Sydney College of the Arts and in their tutor group they had some industrial design students and just through this chance they knew what industrial design was um, and identified that it would be perfect for me. So... I had no exposure that it was a profession, no idea that it was a thing that people did. And just because of this, I got into it. Mm. Um, and I'm a, turned out I was a natural industrial designer. Wow. Yeah, so. were, you, were you always surrounded by creativity with your parents being No, 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 not at all. No, yeah. my mum was a management consultant. Uh, my dad was an engineer, um, not a wildly creative household. Ah, but you said, where, where were they working? They were lecturing at... The old Sydney College, right? Which I think oh, not on, not in the arts, not, not in, in the arts. No, I think it became ah, UTS. Okay, yeah. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. Well, they lucked out there aligning you with that whoever that person was. Um, yeah, so that they just knew it was a profession, um, yeah. and so I researched it. I didn't get the marks I needed to get into UTS, so I, I spent a year in Newcastle, then I transferred to UTS. Wow. Um, and while I was there, I got a job as a glass blower. So I lived with a, a failed artist who introduced me to a glass studio and they um, got me in and they taught me how to sand cast glass first of all and then grinding and polishing and then mm. I worked up into the hot shop and then after that I became their glass designer mm. um, and that was sort of my first foundation into design and glass is a medium for it. And how old were you then? 22, 23. Wow. I so once you found the thing, you really excelled. Um, I don't know if I excelled. I worked hard. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah. you, yeah, you achieved a lot in a very short period of time. How did he get to the point of opening Vert? Uh, I started Vert Design before I'd graduated from uni. 
So I'd set it as a, a goal for myself and I formed the company in 2005 and it sort of lay dormant for two years while I worked at other consultancies. And then in 2007, um, I went into it full time and it became my, my um, sole source of revenue. And how did you go about, what, what, was it, what was the turning point that you kind of decided to do it full time? Well, I effectively uh, got laid off from the job I was working at. You got fired? I got fired. For the glass blowing job? No, I'd quit the glass blowing <laughs> job to, uh, to go design medical products. Right. And I was the first employee of this, this big consultancy um, and it got to, you know, I'd been there for a, a year or so and they said, oh, there's no more work for you. So oh, no. I, um, I went back and made glassware. So after I left there, I rented time in the glass studio. Mm-hmm. I produced a range of glass and went out and sold it um, mm-hmm. and managed to support myself doing that. And have you always been Sydney based? Always, I was born in Darwin, okay. uh, but I've basically grown up in Sydney. Wow. Obviously, the news this week about uh, Jonathan Ive and um, Mark Newson forming a new business called uh, Love Form. Mm, it's going to um, do very well. I could imagine so. <laughs> Have you bought shares? Is there shares already happening if, yet? If there were shares, I'd take them. Right Are you going to take his job at Apple? <laughs> the, the phone hasn't rung yet. It hasn't? No, Damn it. When I look at your work, uh, I just reacquainted myself this earlier today. I looked at your website again and all the projects on there. It's incredible the 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 range of work that you've worked on, mm. and absolutely, you are I, I think at that international level. I mean, it's phenomenal that you're doing that work out of Sydney. Yeah, thank you, Vince. Um, oh, you're unbelievable, and and all the things you do around you know in, industrial design, but in glass, ceramics, furniture, lighting. Yeah, Consumer it's, electronics, wearable tech, fashion, jewelry, eyewear, boats, shelters, and automotive parts. Yeah. <laughs> What's the automotive parts? Um, well, we're, just, we're fitting out cars for disabled drivers. Oh, wow. And as a motorcyclist, I'm particularly interested in cars for amputees and, uh, and guys that have had accidents. So we, we basically, I was out there um, on Monday. So they get a vehicle and set it up that you can drive it one-armed. Or, it's a fascinating area. Mm. And like a really great little business operating out of the back lots of Hornsby is an international exporter and like a market leader in drivers with disabilities. I think it's also very admirable your approach too because you you seem to come at the work from a very much a sustainable kind of doing good approach. Yeah. Uh, is that well, where did that come it, from? It's a broader social trend mm. and it gives us a well, it's interesting. You talked before that we do all these different things and all of them have effectively two things that are in common. They have a, a human side to it. They have some cultural relevance or some interaction with a the person. They've got some ergonomics or you know, someone touches them or uses them in some way. And on the other side, they're a thing that's physically made. So there's... And I guess those two sides are what is the fundamental backbone of industrial design. And mm. we're interested in, in the the oscillation between those two ideas. So mm. why does something exist? You know, how does it have meaning to a person? And then how does it exist? You know, what's it made of? How's it made? And I guess in that sustainability is a really interesting catalyst between those two points because mm. sustainability is about the human side of things, like the objects that we... You know, I think people think a lot now about single-use plastics and it's become a term that... Plastics are just hydrocarbons. They're just hydrogen and carbon atoms. They don't actually... They're not actually good or bad. They're just matter that existed on the earth that's now been put into another form. Mm-hmm. So what makes them good or bad is the way in which they're used mm-hmm. or the way in which they interact with an ecosystem or the secondary effects in which they cause. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's sort of where it's an industrial design issue because it's in the demand state on the human side mm-hmm. and it's in the material state on the physical side. Does that, that wasn't yeah, too yeah. much design wank that made sense? Yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of that, but I, I think <laughs> I think most of our listeners would get all that. I mean, I think that also leads to, you know, the great work you've done with Biopack, which is, a, mm. again, a Sydney-based business yeah, well, well, in Bono Junction. Biopack started when we started. So mm-hmm. Richard Fine, you know, when we opened the studio in 2007, uh, Richard Fine and I used to meet and he was just by himself and, and so was I. Um, and I think it's a fascinating one because it shows 
sustainability is progress, not perfection. Mm. So when we were working with Biopack originally, the market was dominated by polystyrene containers. And now, um, as you can see, they start to become the market leaders and most of the packaging you get in Sydney would be a biopack or a, yeah, a cellulose form. I mean, they were way ahead of their time, weren't they? Definitely, and, and really had to struggle for a long time to get that message across. And the recent recent project did the Husky Cup. That's won loads of awards, and again, that's a very sustainable product. Well, um, not just sustainable, absolutely stunning as an item as yeah, well. Thank you. Well, I think if you look what I was saying before about the two sides of industrial design, that's one that's born out of materiality. So we say on either side of that that chasm of the human or the material, we can start the project from either side. So often mm. a project will start from a user observation. Someone says, oh, why can't I open this can or why why is this door hard to use? Or, But the other side is people say, we have this material, how can we find a meaningful outcome for it? And then that's what the Husky was. So just explain what the material is. So we got approached by Saxon Wright from Pablo and Rusty's and they have um, a plantations of, of coffee um, in the Yinwan province in northern China. I have to fact check that. <laughs> um, but basically the, the, what they end up with is a tonnage of husks. So the husk is the exterior of the bean. So the coffee beans. The coffee beans. So when they're growing it, they end up with you know a, a bean, they need to de-husk it, mm. and then they take that raw bean and it gets roasted. So the husk itself is a byproduct. And it's a great way of thinking. It's how like most material innovations happen. You say, I have a waste product, but really a waste product is just a material you haven't found a use for yet, yeah. which is the old quote from um, Buckminster Fuller. And that's, that was Buckminster Fuller's. It's, waste is just a material we haven't got a use for yet. But this is a natural material that would just break down in the environment, wouldn't it? Yeah, so it, it can be... I'm not 100% sure on the science of it. It can yeah. be put back into an ecosystem in some way. Um, I think because of the volume of it, that's impractical. So, so they came to you with these all these husks and say, look, well, what can we do with it? Or do they want to do a, a reusable cup? Uh, what can we do with it ah. was the brief. And I guess from that, you're sort of looking at provenance. So they say, well, what's practical to do it? Because in, in some ways, it's the hardest brief you can get. A brief that says, like, I have a machine or a material, what should I do with it? Because it doesn't have that human side, which allows you to have empathy, which allows you to go deep into the cultural relevance of an object. Mm. So in this one, I mean, because they're in coffee, it was pretty quickly a logical step to make it part of the infrastructure. How relevant is it to the customers that it's uh, made from a husk or whether uh, it's just a beautiful uh, I think reusable cup? I have to say a huge part of the success has been that narrative. Mm. And I think it's something I've become more aware of and worked better with in the last 10 years is how narrative informs customer experience of design because it was always historically the longer the narrative, the worse the design. You know, someone would come to us and show us a, a, something they'd produced and it would have some rambling narrative and it just meant that it was no good. But more and more we see that the narratives are the way in which people understand things and how they consume design. I have a confession. Last year I was judging the Good Design Awards and I stole one of these Husky <laughs> cups off of the... Judging table. Look, a fifth's as good as a sale. <laughs> but I didn't know the full story till much later. Yeah, I just, it's, it's interesting because I just think that, you know, today, today, a recycled product doesn't need to look recycled, does it? Definitely. It's and it's. I think that's where sustainability's reached. It, it was, you know, a, a decade ago, sustainability looked like personal sacrifice, and now I think it looks more like safety. You assume it's there, mm. and I'm happy if it's not. Dresden Optics, another really interesting product mm. um, project. Mm. Uh, tell us a bit about that, how that came about. Yeah, so I, I can't remember how long ago it was, but, um, but Bruce Jeffries and his um, business partner Jason uh, came and saw us. They um, and they at the point of when they they started, they were looking to do something in optics. And Bruce is obviously from Go Get Cars. He's a successful entrepreneur and a great innovator. Uh, his brief was wild and open. He was saying, you know, is it possible to make glasses out of corn chips or really quite open? Mm. Um, and that was a, a very interesting process because as we were working through concepts, their business model was forming around what those opportunities looked like. So we went from 
you know, this hypothesis of can you make glasses from corn chips? Can you? You can, yeah. Okay. You wouldn't want to. Okay. <laughs> um, and we sort of stumbled across this idea of uniformality. So, you know, in a, a, a humanist sense where, where everyone's striving for individuality and the, the source of meaning comes from your understanding of your own human expression, we said there's comfort in uniformality. So mm. in the ability to say uh, I am the same or reducing the amount of decisions you need to make. So we said we'll make these glasses uniform. That will be the one style that will fit everybody. And then I had to understand about what, how glasses work and how we read them. So what we discovered in that project in a really systemised fashion is that glasses are cartoon eyes. So so much of what the human brain is doing when we interact is looking for small emotional signals from people and we read so much emotion into faces. Mm. You can always see that in uh, when people can see a face in something, they look at a car and can see a face mm. or they look at a faucet and they can see a face. It's because our brain is just continually processing, you know, is there a face and then mm. can I trust it? Yeah. So what we learned is that there's basically glasses read as cartoon eyes. You can create and control expression through them. So a lot of sunglasses are used to hide or mask expression and they create that uh, like a hard-to-read emotion or a, a detached, mm. um, unemotive state. And with the Dresdens, we went for a really neutral form. So they kind of follow the natural profile of an eye and eyebrows. How long did it take to work out that shape? I mean, is it, if it worked for any any face... Any colour? It was really disappointingly quick. We was worked it? out all of these guidelines as to how we were going to discover these forms and, a, and a, a formula in terms of interacting pentagons that express the upper and lower frame and how much they differed to talk about eyebrow movement and we stumbled across it in like two days. Wow. It was just a natural shape. Were you hoping to charge for a longer product? I really was. <laughs> Um, the pair you got now, these are ones you'd had um, 3D printing. Yeah, so I've, I've been wearing these for 10 years now. Well, wow. not this exact pair, but this style. Uh, I worked with Scott Otto, the director, um, on these. So they're based on Marcello Mastriani's glasses from eight and a half, and they're great. And actually, the Dresdens only exist because of the technology we developed in these 3D printed glasses. So Oh, that's that beautiful hinge. Yeah, the hinge detail. So without this hinge... Um, we wouldn't have been able to do the full plastic construction of the Dresden. So, so did that come first, the, the ones? Yeah, ones? Th these came first. And I guess that's maybe why Dresden contacted us because we had at that point maybe 100 styles of glasses we'd done as mm. one-off 3D prints for people. Wow. But it, that's a fascinating point because the development we did in this hinge, we were then able to apply into Dresden's project. And that's a big part of what we've been doing at Vair Design is experimentation in new materiality or in process and then we have this database of experimentation which allows us to de-risk more experimental client projects. Mm. Yeah, I noticed on your website you have an experimental section which shows a whole bunch of workshop pictures of you guys blowing things up. I think that's really cool that you actually show that to the public because yeah. a lot of people don't show kind of the stuff they're doing research and yeah. development on the side. I think what I've learned is that people somehow assume that designers are creative geniuses and we pull creations out of our brain because of some unique inspiration. But reality is design is work and what we're good at is creating a process which allows us to work through complex problems and produce meaningful outcomes. I mean, you've said before that you worked on, um, you were working in the medical industry. Mm. Um, is that where, because you, on your website, again, you show uh, quite a few medical products. Mm. Is, are you still doing that? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. We're working on uh, a single-use defibrillator at the moment, which is quite challenging. There's a it's lot quite of, a responsibility, isn't it? <laughs> quite a responsibility. But I guess it's an industry that has a process. Mm. And the process is all about de-risking things that are inherently risky. And, you know, as humans, we've been doing this for millennia. We have pretty strong processes that allow us to deliver. Uh, a recent project too I love, which is the the marine debris doorknobs. Mm. I love that. Is that a title? 
Yeah, marine debris. Yeah, we've been calling it marine debris bakelite plastic. Yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, how, how do they come about? Is uh, it the idea or the product? Again, if someone can we do the product going, hey, what can we do with this? Uh, well, it goes back 10 years. So I worked with um, a company called Revolve Your World and they were involved in beach cleanup. So they came to us with bags of plastic and said, we've been collecting this plastic. They currently had to pay to dump it. So they had to pay to... There was, it was, effectively, they were working with um, the Surfrider Foundation and Tangalima Blue and volunteers would take two weeks annual leave, they'd go to a remote location, they'd spend a week collecting plastic, then they'd have to pay to um, to ship it. So either they buried it in the sand dunes, burned it on the beach, or they'd um, ship it to the mainland, truck it to a tip, pay to dump it at the tip, and the physical cost of disposing of it affected how many collections they could do. So, you know, same as the husk, I said, here's a waste product, what can we do with it? So we went through the process that, you know, same as we did with the husk to say, okay, what are the properties of this material? What do we have? So we ordered it, we cleaned it, we ground it and processed it in a number of ways, sort of de-risked it to the point we said, yes, we can make something out of this product and then selected it to make something beautiful out of the product. And so the doorknobs are a natural use of the material. So they don't require huge mechanical strength and they don't require thin wall sections it's just saying what are the properties of it and how do we make something meaningful mm. out of it. You're, you're a passionate uh, motorcycle rider like I am. Um, and I remember a little while ago we went for a bike ride together one Sunday and it's very good. you rode my bike for a bit. Um, it's interesting too. When, it, when you, you made your own um, customized chopper. Mm. And I thought that was kind of interesting because a guy that can probably design anything, I would thought you'd done like a you know, like a hover bike or something or done something more high-tech, you know, kind of thing. We went for kind of a, a classic yeah, kind of chopper, really uncomfortable. Because <laughs> I rode your bike and it was painful <laughs> driving over the bumps. What, why did you do that? Why did you um, I think do that bike? There's something distinctly honest about the chopper. It's a very visceral experience. I mean, customization in bikes is done for a reason. You know, often it's someone wants to take emotional ownership over the bike mm-hmm. or they want some performance advantage. But I think with the... Well, uh, practically, I, I had a, a Sportster, a Harley Sportster, and I'd done a lot of engine work to it, so it was fast. Yeah. And every time I'd hop on it, I'd be over the moon for about 20 minutes. Right. And then 30 minutes in, I'm going, oh, this is a bit boring. And the chopper, it, it adds a sense of excitement and I guess, like like a musical instrument, the difficulty of operating it is what creates the emotional attachment to it. So making something slightly harder to use makes it more <laughs> endearing. Really? <laughs> but I thought surely all the other stuff, you don't, your medical products aren't hard, designed to be hard no, to use. No, not at all. No, um, but I guess they have less of an <laughs> emotional imperative. Easy. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's not anti-design, but it's certainly a well, it's, ritualness think, to it. Isn't I think it going it's kind of, time? if you look at, industrial designers outside of their work, you'd see they'll often look to solve product-based problems with behaviour or they'll often... I mean, I buy very few new things. Most of what I buy are second-hand goods or things in which I'll repair. And I think it may be being an understanding that industrial designers would glorify in the new and be interested in consumption. Mm, yeah. But I suspect it, it tends the other way. So what's your, what's your day like? I mean, you walk around every time you see something, you go, oh, I could design that better. Do you get frustrated with it, poor yeah, design? You have to turn it off because broadly when you start to apply a criteria of evaluation, everything is rubbish and everything could be better. <laughs> and it, it's maddening. If you, yeah. What is good? But everyone always goes straight to Apple. I mean, is Apple that great? I mean, the thing that was great about Apple was they had such a strong reason for being and delivered on it. So if you think about what Apple was in the 90s and early 2000s, it was a company that made a premise that said, how do we integrate tech and hardware to make a, a seamless user experience? And you'd have to ask, is that what Apple still does today? Yeah, and has it, has it evolved? I mean, it's, it's I, definitely I, has a look and feel that seems quite familiar. And I mean, it is very familiar. It's iconic, I guess. Mm, yeah, definitely. I mean, and it's, it's sort of a cliche to say, but you, know, you look at the influence that Jonathan Ives had 
took from Dieter Rams. Yeah, exactly. Um, clients, a good client's vital to any, any yeah, outcome, definitely. isn't it? Yeah, oh, definitely. If you look at the projects we've talked about, most of the ones you've highlighted are ones with exceptionally good clients. Mm. And, and they're clients who, I guess, do their part well. Mm-hmm. Um, often, a, I guess, there's a, a narrative of... of I've been really interested in these narratives of creative success at the mm-hmm. moment. You know, the sort of the narratives that because I've realised there's a couple. There's, so there's narratives that brands tell for consumption. So you know, a furniture brand might tell a narrative of, of creativity to help you understand how to consume a chair or to in, in raise its value. Um, but then there's narratives that designers tell amongst themselves, which are often more about how do I achieve creativity or what does the actual process look like? How did failure play a part in my end result? But there's these broader narratives in society where somebody has an idea, that idea then turns into a patent and that patent then results in untold financial success. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I question a lot of these narratives. I, I don't see often this scenario where somebody has turned an idea into a patent, turned it into huge success. And I think that narrative, though, does attract some interesting characters. Mm. Yeah. But like like uh, a project such as the, you know, Dresden, I mean, mm. presumably they're opening a whole bunch of stores mm. uh, locally, maybe internationally eventually. Mm. Do you ever look at a project like that and go, well, it's based on, yes, it's a client's idea to produce a mm. standardised product, but you've actually designed it. Do you kind of sometimes go, you know, I wish I'd actually created that product myself or created the brand yeah, myself? we do sometimes. I've got oh, a, a number of spin-off companies that, you know, some have great success, some are, you know, floundering with lack of attention. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think um, we all have some of those. <laughs> I, I would never... No, I, I think the... I mean, the, the industrial design is the first 5% and, you know, of that getting started and, and the, the resulting 95% of the work is, you know, the, every industrial designer has a a top drawer full of great ideas or, mm. you know, finished designs that are languishing. So so do you go go to bed at night with all these ideas, you know, floating around your head? Yeah, definitely. Yep, notepad you, by the by the table. Do you have any ideas that you just like over and over again, year after year, just kind of sitting there, you know it's going to be something or it's going to be big a couple. in the future? Well, I've spoken to you about a couple, Vince. What happened to those? <laughs> they're in my head Yeah, now. they're in your head. We, <laughs> did, we did nothing about them. That's what happened. <laughs> oh, thanks for that. Pass on this uh, a sleepless night. Um, how do you? You've got a young family too, right? Mm. How do you? How do you make that work? I mean, how do you kind of have you designed your life in such a way that uh, you can run? I know running a business can be incredibly stressful and, mm. and a lot of work. Do you switch on and off, or are you like? How, how does it work? Yeah, for you? I've definitely gotten better at switching off. Uh, I wasn't so good a few years ago. Uh, I have a very traditional family structure. You now we have a, a three-bedroom suburban home with a, a, you know, my wife is full-time with the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that traditional structure has worked very well uh, for me. You know, it mm-hmm. does give me the ability to focus very heavily on the work without the worry that, I mean, that who's going to pick up the sick kid from, from sick bay and it's yeah, yeah. worked very well. Um, you also worked for Deus. We did a, um, a podcast with uh, Carby and Dare a little while ago. Um, do you work with them on the on some of their products or the badging? Yeah, I, I love that podcast. By the way, it was oh, absolutely fantastic. Oh, cool, thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah, they were good guys. I, I listened so to funny. it as I was driving around in Sweden trying to find a moose, and I, I, I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you text me that? No, were you were you in Sweden? I think I was in Japan. Sweden. Yeah, in Sweden. You were all over the place for a while there. <laughs> What the hell is Andrew doing in Tokyo on a motorcycle <laughs> in the snow? Being well, cold. Very well, why, cold. Why did you do that? Uh, I got a Churchill Fellowship. So I'm, I'm now a, a Churchill Fellow. But I did a five-week international trip looking at glass production. Wow. And so I went to Japan. On a motorcycle. On a motorcycle. On a number of motorcycles. Yeah. So where did you go? I went to Japan. Yeah. Um, then I went to Mexico. Uh, and then I went to Sweden and Finland. So yeah, looking at world-class glass production facilities with a special focus on mould production. I didn't see any of that in your Instagram. I just saw you <laughs> riding a bike everywhere. <laughs> oh, here's the Joshua tree. Or were you stuck on some mountain in the snow at one I did, point? I, did get, I was stuck in Japan. I, um, I thoroughly <laughs> underestimated how cold the mountains in Japan are. So, and then you've got a, you got a, a, a team just down the road from here. Mm. 
How many how many people are in there? Uh, there's eight of us. Which is and how do you find you know going from being a solo practitioner to actually running a business? Um, I've found it quite natural. I, I probably didn't do it so well in the early days, but I, I love my team. Like sometimes people say, "Oh, you've got a, a team." All those mouth to face. Like, designers are amazing, mm. and and their like their creativity and their approach to life and their general nature for like collective organisation and uh, I I had to um. I'm doing some teaching at the moment and just it's just good to stop sometimes and say I love designers. You know, mm. I love their their often inarticulated romantic approach to to mundane problems or to mm. I mean their, their left of center thinking is to you know something that that might be seen as an obstacle to other people and is seen as a you know a, a way to enjoy something more. I mm. I, I love them. Mm. How long have you been teaching for? I think I've always done a little bit of teaching. Um, I was lecturing in glass even, you know, as a recent graduate mm-hmm. um, and just more recently I've done some postgraduate teaching. It's been very good. It's good for me. I don't know what the students get out of it, but it's it's good for me because I have to honestly and clearly articulate the design process. It, there's no room for jargon or assumed knowledge. I have to, you know... It, and I guess a lot of what I'm doing at the moment is helping final year students through their major projects and I have to help them structure their brief in a way that they are actually solving meaningful problems and then helping them map out what steps are they going to take to solve those in a meaningful way and it's great training for me. And have you found that's a lot of talent in that area? Yeah, definitely. Like the, the students have, um, yeah, I, I think, I think it's, it's often people like to think that somehow things were better in the past, mm-hmm. that somehow, you know, there's a, there's a downgrading in educational standards. And, but the education system we have today has taken all of the learnings and mistakes from the past mm-hmm. and built on it to produce better and better outcomes. Like the courses that are taught today are, are literally the best courses that are ever taught because they take all of that learning from 100 years of design education. That's definitely a good way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you see all these young? Where there's all young talent going? Are they just going overseas, or how, how many are they getting through into, yeah. into jobs? Locally? I think in industrial design, the traditional jobs are very few. Mm. So you know they might produce three hundred or so graduates in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Uh, the traditional jobs would be you know a handful of them, um, but people take those design skills into a huge array of areas. Uh, but the other thing that's changing today is. I guess the startup landscape mm-hmm. and the ability for people to produce their own product. Yeah. So you know, gone are the editors or the people that needed to give you the you know the royal seal before you could make a successful product. And I'm seeing a lot of students basically form companies around their ideas, um, and that's a huge change. That's really cool to hear. You did a a boat project with um, Ben Cooper. Mm. What was that called again? O six hundred. Why is it called that? Uh, that's the the time in the morning where Ben Cooper goes kayaking. <laughs> oh, it was a kayak, wasn't it? Kayak, well, you done yeah. you done a couple few boats. Though. Yeah, I did a, a yeah a build it yourself um, rowboat in two thousand and ten, mm-hmm. and then a couple of iterations after that. And I guess the the kayak sort of comes off the back of that. And there's a kayak um, a business uh, project. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so we've sold tens of kayaks not not hundreds but they're fantastic i see them out on the water all the time i I sail most weekends and you know most weekends i'll see someone out in one of our kayaks wow that was a fun thing to do i guess i guess the thing that's really interesting about industrial design like when i look at architecture architects have such strong process and we work a lot with architects like you look at what they're doing and Mm -hmm. they can rationalize every use of material every structural member every position of a part and like the process in which they use to get there, they trust it and it's so articulated and strong. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when I look at other design fields, I, I see no process at all. Like I mean, when I look at your graphic design work, I can see that it's structured and rigorous and you have process around it. I see some other graphic designers and there's no process that underpins it at all. They just take stimulus and then they sort of smash it through a membrane and you get some 
derivative version of things that already exist. And I guess what we've tried very hard at Vert Design is to have process mm. that the the we want to find honest, meaningful outcomes for products, and we need structured ways of helping deliver that. And I guess what I've learned, especially in the last five years, is making a distinction between design outcomes and project outcomes and making sure that process allows us to deliver better project outcomes. So if you look at Husky or Dresden, they're both products that have great project outcomes, you know, that they're delivered mm. at, a, at a price point which is saleable. The narrative of the design allows the company to you know, have a really strong brand and marketing and some other things might be objectively better design but poorer project outcomes. Have you ever done projects which are not end up being in a physical form? Yes. Like design process with a, with a brief but nothing physical? Yeah. There's a, a term industrial. in industrial design now called post-artifact, which is how a lot of designers are describing moving from object into um, services. Or I think we're really still very much based in the artifact. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes we'll see that logically the problem we've been set a service is the answer to that solution or a behavioural change, but I'm not, I'm not in service design. But it's interesting, uh, obviously, IDO mm. um, a long time ago created the design thinking mm. at Stanford. Um, and that is comes from industrial design. Mm, definitely. The, the process, but obviously a pro, a, applicable to all forms of design now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, is that is that a process you... Yeah, well, we naturally well. do it. So, you know, that design thinking, you know, IDEO took it out of the natural practice of industrial design. And it's it's often hard to articulate exactly what design thinking is. Like I, I hear a lot of discussion of it. I hear conflicting versions of what it is. And the, the interpretation I've taken from it is it's this conceptual thinking. It's bringing in new stimulus. It's approaching problems not directly but looking at sideways ways of approaching them, hypothesising about solutions and then testing them. Mm-hmm. You know, and I guess that, that's the core of what industrial design is. Mm. You know, human-centred design has become the big buzzword now. Mm. Um, and again, that must come from yeah. industrial design. Definitely. You've, you'd, you've probably always said, well, yeah, it's for humans. Yeah, <laughs> otherwise they're meaningless. Yeah. You know, it's, it's all objects in some way are for humans. How, how important is it for you to understand the actual customer that you're designing to yeah, it, for, for their use. It's important to understand them, but it's also really important to have a empath- empathy with them. You know, as I said before, like I, I love designers. I think the, the designers we have in their team are always able to create empathy. Like mm-hmm. even, even in the face of something that seems like egregious or um, you know, something that, that the, the core of it might seem dishonest, in there is... Uh, like a human, a human that maybe has had some suffering, that there's a way to create empathy, mm-hmm. and it's only once you get to that empathetic point that you can then design something that has that human-centered approach to it. So, does that empathy come from you naturally, or is that coming through, you know, doing what you do more so? I think maybe naturally. You know that I can. I I, I heard something uh, decades ago. It was a, a guy giving a. Um, uh, a graduate address and he said you can you can have a moment where you stand in the supermarket and you can look around and see humanity as a mass of of faces going about their mediocre tasks mm-hmm. or you can stop and look at everyone and see the innate human struggle in them mm-hmm. and I've been very much stopped and looked at the innate human struggle in everyone and seen the wonder of that human experience and what struggles people need to overcome and I think mm. that point allows you to design well. So have you got any any opportunities or challenges you're thinking that you'd love to do? Uh, I would love to design a motorcycle. And, you uh, would. Let's put it, it out there. <laughs> yeah. uh, I've done a little bit of work with Dayas. We've been doing some stuff on their Yamaha range. Mm-hmm. It's uh, only whet my appetite. I've got mm. Mm. Not going to turn them into choppers. Uh, well, maybe. What would, you, would you, what would you do? Well, making them more mammalian. You know, I think a lot of the direction of motorcycle design has been this sort of exoskeleton or this broadly an insect form. Mm-hmm. And I think oh, so much of the forms in which 
people love are these mammalian forms. You know, they're more fem- like feline or. What about um, do you get opportunities globally, or are you, you predominantly Australian yeah, based? No, definitely. No, we've got um, we're designing stuff for the um, the FIFA soccer in England at the moment. Doing some um, some tech devices for them. Uh, we work for a couple of international medical firms. How do people come across you? More and more so through our folio, you know, through our website. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, traditionally it's it's referral. I often think, you know, how do you find a lawyer? Well, you, you know, ask somebody you trust, who's, who should I talk to? And I think it's the same with industrial design. It's a personal process and, you know, people want recommendations and referrals. And do you want to continue to grow your business or are you, do you like the scale of it at the I, moment? I really like the scale at the moment. You know, there's been an opportunity over the couple of years to, to grow. I'd like to continue just doing better and better work. Mm-hmm. And I think the team I've got at the moment is the right size to deliver on that. And do you um, turn work away? Rarely, but sometimes. Only things that I ask you to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. And uh, we are doing it. We have done a few things together, which is really, really cool. Mm. Um, what I love is just your passion and your your mind. As soon as you can have a conversation talking about a problem mm. or an opportunity, you're already into solution mode mm. or thinking about, oh, how, how do we tackle this? Or oh, you could do this, you could do that. Um, that's really interesting. I kind of, I think that is a unique to a designer's mind, isn't it? Mm, I hope so. That problem it's solving, yeah, determination it's, it's, to do something good. It's so. I guess it's underneath it lies the trust in our own process. So, you know, when we get a problem, we can see opportunity, mm. and knowing that we don't need to solve it in the absolute detail initially, we can look broadly at a direction and an opportunity that comes from that, and trusting that. As we get into the process, it will tease out all of those details that will make it practical. Mm. I think there's two. There's a flip side to it, and I employed a guy years ago who'd done a, a thesis in reverse fixation. So he said fixation is a problem that plagues engineers, and it's where they will come up with a solution and not be able to move on from that solution. Um, right. And why? why? Uh, it's fixation. It's a. It's a. I guess for engineers it's about risk, that right. a lot of the engineering process is about completely guaranteeing a de-risking of something. Um, well, they come up with a solution that I think it can't be anything more than that or...? You know, they'll, they'll struggle to move on from it. You know, they'll see a, a... So it might be in the type of structure you use to make a bridge and they'll, they'll deliver it once and then deliver it again oh, okay. and a new problem will come up and I mean, they'll revert back to a previous solution. Right. And industrial designers have potentially the opposite problem called reverse fixation where they'll reject um, a logical way of solving a problem because it's not novel. So there might be a very straightforward way to solve something uh, and instead they'll look for a new solution. Mm. And it's as big a problem as um, as fixation. I mean, you're talking about um, Australian industrial design mm. and I guess retail in general, um, is that people talk about, uh, you know, retail is struggling... Yeah, there's not much products being made in Australia, but that's mm. not actually true, is it? Things are quite interesting in Australian industrial design at the moment. And there's been a, a number of reasons for that. We've sort of grown up. There's um, enough uh, people that have had design success and you know, these really great role models now of people who are succeeding in industrial design. Um, and then there's a sort of a collective movement. So for a while, I think we suffered from this idea of zero-sum thinking that there was a competition and competitiveness amongst industrial designers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, success for somebody else meant there was less for everybody else. Mm. And that idea got slowly squashed and, and removed. And as a result, we ended up with a really strong community. And when we had a strong community, we were able to, you know, put on group exhibitions and travel internationally. And um, and that, you know, design is not a zero-sum game. Creativity is not, you know, the... If, if you have creative success, it just means there's more creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has led to this sort of runaway success. And there's now great examples of people that have you know, used industrial design as the foundation of a new business. It's, it's good. It's a good time. Mm. Have you designed much furniture? Uh, a little bit of furniture. I'm, I guess I'm, furniture design is its own category of industrial design. And it's much more built around uh, brand name designers. And, and why that's, is that? It, 
it works quite well. You know, it's it, they, it if you look at brand name design or branded designers, it, it seems like a, a false construct, like it's a, a narrative of creative success that doesn't necessarily ring true when you dig under the layers of it, but it is a narrative of, of that allows for consumption. So it's how do you make an objective decision as to a piece of furniture? Well, a, a brand name designer lets you make that decision with confidence, and so it works really well. But what makes someone a, a great industrial designer versus a great furniture designer? Is this the, where they put their energy? Well, a lot of great furniture designers are architects, and a lot of the examples of the best furniture in history was designed by architects. Mm. So it's not necessarily the process. I think it's the intention and the energy, like you said. Mm. Um, it's funny, I got asked to uh, give a lecture at UTS uh, last year, and the subject was design identities. So it, the premise of it was how do how does a designer become a brand name designer? And I'm mm. definitely not the right person to to be giving this lecture. But it was a, a fascinating topic. Well, you did it anyways. <laughs> Helping somebody out. <laughs> um, okay, what was the answer? What, did you, what was your position on that? Well, it's, I think it's fascinating because it, what the students understood intuitively that if they were regarded as a, a brand name designer, they would have more opportunity and there'd be you know, the opportunity to do bigger projects or more interesting projects. But the idea that they could shortcut that process to... I guess, create a brand for themselves as a designed exercise, I, I found it to be a false premise. I think traditionally design is around, well, I, I'd say that traditionally designers found something that interested them and then they worked in that area and they produced things that were meaningful mm -hmm. while digging into something that honestly interested them. Mm. And then at some point that might then interest other people. Yeah, which then created their recognition of their brand. That's, and I think the idea that you could just create the brand without the honest interest and the work in that area was, was perhaps a false premise. I was going to ask you, um, for maybe designers starting out, but also, I mean, broadly, um, uh, empathy, as you said, is so, mm. so vital to designing, understanding the human beings and the customer or the person who's going to interact with your product or mm. design. How do you get better at that? I mean, how do you, mm. if, if you're not, not everybody is empathetic, you know, it's like. Mm. Advice to young designers, I think would be, listen to the types of narratives of creative success you're consuming. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when I graduated, there was a narrative of what design creativity looked like. And I've never seen that actually play out. And it looked like designing things within a vacuum and producing works that had, you know, that stemmed from some uh, observation of the world that only I had and mm. then I'd produce it in a perfect form and then someone would come and manufacture it and then I'd get paid royalties. That narrative still gets told in some way. I think it's never not a lived experience of any designers. I think design is really about... Um, working within communities and solving problems and, um, yeah, I, I think you see it in all areas. I'm, I'm reading some Alain de Botton at the moment. He's got a great book called The Joys and Sorrows of Work and he sort of laments the fact that, you know, as life gets more complicated and work becomes more segmented, uh, there's less glorification and individuality in our achievements and more and more achievements are group-based or, you know, a small part of a larger team. Mm. And I think you see a lot of that in design as well. Do you ever get stuck? Yeah, definitely. Yep. I, I, what do you do? Um, I have to look at a way of going sideways around it. I mm. think I've sort of come to understand that human creativity, we can't actually create anything new. Mm -hmm. And I, you can demonstrate this by looking into science fiction and I can't find a single alien that's been thought up that isn't just a combination of things that exist on earth and I've tried to do the experiment myself to think of something entirely new and I think we're just mammals we just take the stimulus we have you know to create mm. new things um, so I have to go sideways 
I mean, if, if I often if I approach a problem head on, I'm only using the stimulus that I have to try to solve it. I need a new data point, mm. and that's why it's often breaking it out. So I, I'm you know teaching these students at the moment. It's wonderful watching them, and they'll often just try to cognitively solve some problem. And I look at the nature of the problem they're trying to solve. It's fluid dynamics, do you know, and and like multiple bodies intersecting. So you're just trying to think that out, are you? Mm. And like, there's a process to do it. You draw it or you make a little model. You make a paper one and you move it around. And often those approaches will break you out of it and give you another opportunity and let you approach it from another direction, mm. which generally allows it to break down. So I'm going to ask this question. You, yeah. you don't have to answer okay, yeah, good, disagree good. with me. Yeah. <laughs> you don't, don't have to agree with me. Um, hey, Andrew, have you designed your life? Uh, no. I, I really, I would, I would have to say that if design is um, the systematic attempt to deliver an outcome on a life, I I've, would have to say it's a failed design. Uh, I, what I have done is accepted life on life's terms I mean, and um, made the most of what's been brought my way. Uh, I have some design my life in terms of my recreational activities. I've intentionally picked interests that I think will last me a lifetime. So the things that interest me are, you know, outside of work, I do fine woodworking, I do sailing. It's oh, not, not related to industrial design in oh, any way. No, I, I do, I do, <laughs> yeah. I do um, painting. Uh, I Jesus. I, I do a little bit of bird watching. Bird watching? Shh, don't, don't tell anyone. Yeah. Um, well, and, and motorcycles. Motorcycles, yeah. And I think they're all activity. Well, the motorcycling eventually. Slightly dangerous. Eventually that will not be possible. I look at older and older motorcyclists, and I can see at some point that's oh uh, that's unsustainable. Well, you're only like, th- how old are you, 30-something? 30 37. Jesus, you've got a long time to go. Just be careful out there. <laughs> and and put some extra springs on that on that chopper of yours. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, look, Andrew, it's been fantastic catching up with you today. Yeah, thank you, Vince. How do people get hold of you? Uh, well, through the website, mm-hmm. uh, vertdesign.com.au. Mm-hmm. Um, Instagram, yeah, Instagram. We'll, we'll put links on the on the podcast. But it's been, um, yeah, a real privilege to catch up with you with you and um, hearing about all that what you're doing. Yeah, thanks, Vince. Thank you all for listening. If you want to find out more about designing your life, head over to our website at designyourlife.com.au or on our social media at Frost Collective. <laughs>